Welcome to the FFI Practitioner Podcast, and today we're pleased to feature Family Enterprise Advisors Josh Barron and Rob Lockenauer, both from Banyan Global Family Business Advisors and co-authors of the article, Do Most Family Businesses Really Fail by the Third Generation, published in Harvard Business Review last year. Welcome to you both. I'll start with you, Josh. Why did you feel the need to take on this project? Well, Rob and I, through our, our work and um, through the book that we co-authored for, for HBR, have been really focusing on this issue of how do you build family businesses that can last for the long term? And so one of the things that we came up upon was this whole idea that, well, family businesses don't last. They're, they're somehow fragile and, and doomed to failure. And so we thought it was just important to really have us take, take a step back to, to look at where this idea of, you know, the mythology around three generations comes from and to try to really understand if it is actually an appropriate way of looking at family businesses or if there are better ways to understand their ability to, to be sustainable over the long term. The three generations rule of law is almost a generation ago to begin with. Josh, if you'd explain what it is just in general terms, and and then we'll figure out why it's sort of still followed after all these years. Sure, absolutely. So there's really two pieces of this puzzle, the way people talk about it. One is that, as you're suggesting, Jordan, there's some data that was put together very carefully and, and what, you know, in a helpful way. Um, it's really more about how it's been used and then the data itself, but that looked at the question of how long do family businesses last? And there, so there was a study that was done about Illinois manufacturing companies in the 1980s, looking back and seeing how many had lasted, how many had, had gone away over time. And that's when we talk about the data about you know, X percent of businesses make it to, you know, through the second, through the third. Um, that's sort of one idea is this notion. And, and the way it's been interpreted is that most family businesses don't last for till the end, till you know, three generations are beyond. Um, so that's one piece of it. The other piece is this idea of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves that that sort of um, people may, you know, one generation makes the wealth, the second generation kind of rests on their laurels. And by the third generation, the family is poor again. Um, and that one, I think pretty definitively there, there are great examples you can find in the, the media, but there's not really any support for the idea that most wealthy people are poor again by the time the third generation comes along. And so there's this mythology, when we talk about the three generations mythology, it's really this notion that the businesses are doomed to fail and that families you know, are doomed to be poor again after this initial burst of success. Self-fulfilling prophecy is a dangerous thing. So Rob, uh, what is the, the negative in having this still hang in there as a theory that has legs? Why, why is it hurtful to current businesses out there? Other than being wrong (laughs) (laughs) with it. Part of the things, uh, one of the problems with it is it can cause uh, conflict between generations, second generation. And you're saying, oh, look at the data. You lazy. (laughs) You know, the whole wrap around it is it's just not a helpful thing. I think it just it talks about the wrong thing. It talks about failures instead of what it takes to succeed, which is, I think, a much more constructive conversation. It also defines failures, we think, incorrectly. So the uh, the idea that um, the Rockefellers are a failed family or the the Waltons, by this definition, are a failed family because Whoa, interesting. The, the Waltons don't own more than 50% of Walmart, so they would have been kicked out 
in in two generations for this uh, this measurement, I think they're a pretty successful family uh, and a pretty successful business. So a different focus should be given. Yeah, the self fulfilling prophecy of it. So um, in addition to my my day job, I teach in the MBA program, and at the beginning of every class, I ask the students to introduce themselves, and they'll go around and say, "My name is so and so. I'm from this part of the world." and I am this generation of my family business. And inevitably there'll be a, at least one that will raise their hand and say, you know, I'm whoever, I'm from the third generation. I'm the one that's gonna ruin our family business. <laughs> and so I'm like, no, that's not, that's not how this works. Um, and we actually see this in, with the families that we work with that sometimes they'll actually use that as a, as a reason to not continue. They love their business, right? And they, they wanna say, well, do I have to really choose between this being a, a um, successful business and it being controlled by the family. And again, that's not, that's not what this is saying, right? I mean, the, really what the data on, on um, family business failure is really telling you is that making a business last for 100 years, three mm -hmm. generations, mm -hmm. is really hard. And that's true of all businesses. It's just not saying there's something inherently broken or wrong with family companies. And that's where Rob and I really have the issue with not just citing the data fine understand this is a difficult challenge if you want to make a business last for the long term like you have your work cut out for you whether it's a family business or a non-family business but the idea that somehow family businesses are more fragile and that families who have wealth are doomed to failure that's where we really take issue with this concept you said walmart's a perfect example what would be another example that listeners can understand in real terms so I think the Rockefellers, you know, most people view the Rockefellers as an incredibly successful family. And way back when, when JD, you know, was, uh, created the company, an incredibly successful company. Um, but then they eventually sold and went public. Mm -hmm. And in the data set, uh, that would say, well, I think they did it. I think they did it in the second generation. So they would be out. But the, fa the fact that the family has recreated itself is incredibly philanthropic and also quite entrepreneurial we would view as a successful migration uh, or transformation of the company and the, the assets and the family itself. It's so interesting because in public companies, uh, I worked for BCG for many years, mostly with public companies, like the big thing is transformation. How are we gonna remake our asset base to be more valuable? And that's thought of as a really good thing. And with family owned businesses, if you transform your holdings, at least in this definition, it's viewed as a, as a failure. You talk about the importance to the economy of family business overall and the great impact that family business really does have, somewhat overshadowed by a study like this that people just look at and say, oh, yeah, that's the way it's always been. Yeah, I think this is really the, the fundamental problem we have with this whole line of thinking is that it's um, it just really focuses on the negative, which, frankly, there's just too, way too much of in the, you know, when people talk about family businesses, they think of the the, the dramas, both the, the real life ones like the Murdochs and and others like that, but also the, the fictional ones like, you know, Succession or Dynasty Dallas. And the impression that we have when we talk about family businesses is just through this very negative lens. And this three generation rule almost becomes like a scare tactic to say, you better do this or you better do that. And there's just a risk, I think, in talking too much about the negative and not really focusing on all the positive things that family businesses bring. I mean, they tend to be, you know, better employers, better corporate citizens, not all, but, you know, overall. And there's a lot of, as you said, there's a lot of positive contributions they make to the economy. 
And just the way that family businesses do capitalism, I think, is a much more sustainable, viable way for all the things that were we talk about stakeholder capitalism and being, you know, good employers, all this kind of stuff. Well, family businesses have been doing this forever, but we tend to focus too much on all this negative stuff and not on all the positive contributions that family companies are and can make to the economy. Gentlemen, like everything else, family dynamics have morphed and shifted over the years in all parts of the world. What impact can changes in family life and family structure have in family business over time? Look, I think when family businesses go wrong, they go really wrong, right? So when you hear these examples that, you know, that where the family's fighting and they're in lawsuits and all that kind of a stuff, yeah. all that kind of stuff, you know, not only is the business suffer, the family suffers. And so owning things together can be a real detriment to family relationships. And that's what people have an understandable level of fear about. But again, that, that can happen. It's by no means inevitable. And we tend to overlook the positive aspects of it. And, and when working with a family, if you think about it, if you're in the third or fourth generation of your family business, it means that you are having relationships with you know, cousins or even second, third cousins when you get further even beyond that, that you probably otherwise would barely know by name. And we work with some families that are in their fourth, fifth generation, several hundred family members. They have these incredible network of family connections that just wouldn't exist without the business as a reason to do it. And so I think actually when done the right way in a constructive fashion, family businesses can be the anchor uh, to really keep you know, or the glue to hold a family together and to really create these long lasting relationships and connections that in this world of people living all over the place and moving around and all that kind of stuff, which is great, um, it you can lose that sense of family connection and, and family businesses can under the right circumstances, be the antidote to that. It can be a way to keep a family connected connected to each other over the long term. In the piece you two wrote, and it's really extensive, you don't ignore the pandemic and what is now hopefully post-pandemic for the mm -hmm. most part. Rob, we'll start with you. If anything points out the success stories of family businesses, not that we're denying that there are problems, it's the reaction and the action taken post-pandemic. You want to comment on that? I'll comment on the family part of that mm -hmm. question and the, the family owners that we deal with, you know, pandemic was tough, really tough on many, um, on all of us, I would have to say. And what we've, what I found, and Josh and I haven't talked about this. I don't know. I don't think we've talked about this, but those families that were strong as institutions going in actually came out stronger as families I'm speaking of. And those that had problems going in a lot of times it, it got tougher for them uh, as institutions. And the general rule, the specific, which was also going on underneath is you had some new dynamics that were so interesting to us. We have this great client in the Middle East and it's run by two very, very powerful patriarchs who are like in their seventies. And you get in a board meeting with them, family board meeting, and there'd be those and, and like 20 other family members all you know, physically before COVID. And all eyes would go on the two brothers and everything they said was, was so important. First few meetings we had with that family on Zoom once COVID hit, the dynamics of the meeting changed. They were just another one of the Hollywood squares or two brothers. So the amount of communication that was happening uh, across the uh, 20 family members changed radically and positively. Not only was it interesting that that happened, but it was also interesting that the brothers 
enjoyed the fact that that was happening. They could actually step back and see a generational transition going in a positive way. It yeah. wasn't happening as well physically. We've been referring to the Ward study taking place in the 1980s. Let's take a look at the work you both did with the 2020 study. Yeah, and this was particular trying to understand what was happening through the pandemic, you know, and, and I think to Rob's point, you know, we when we looked at how families were getting along with each other, um, it was really divided into thirds where a third of them were actually saw their relationships improving. Um, some stayed the same and then a, a third basically saw some deterioration. I do agree with Rob that I think that those that came in with a strong base were really able to weather the storm really well. Those that didn't kind of in some ways went one of one two directions. They either use it as an opportunity to get on the same page um, or they, you know, or or it really played into some of those dynamics and actually led to them, those situations becoming more and more challenging. Um, but I think from a the, the other thing we saw from a business side is that, you know, there were certainly some family businesses that really struggled. If you were in the hospitality, you know, tourism industry, this was nothing more than a total disaster and you were lucky to make it through. Um, most family businesses, though, are kind of built for resilience. They're, they're not built for the times of you know, really rapid growth. They're not as risk, you know, as risk taking, um, you know, as debt laden, all the things that make companies do better in, in high growth times. They don't tend to do those things. The flip side, though, is when times get really tough, family businesses are really good at lasting and surviving through those things. And I think right. what we found in the pandemic with most of our clients and, and through this research study that we did was that there was some initial level of uncertainty, um, but most family businesses not only came out of this you know, surviving, but actually used it as an opportunity to maybe do some things they probably should have been doing before, like getting online more, you know, e-commerce, those kinds of things, using technology better, but also saw it as a time from a business perspective that they could actually, you know, take some steps forward because some of their other, you know, that some of their peers weren't doing nearly as well. So I just think that the, the you know, as, as painful as this was for all of us, it was really a time where the values and virtues of family businesses, I think, shone through during those times, not just in how they performed, but really even more importantly, how they acted, you know, crisis, crises reveal character and the families that we worked with for the most part, they were trying, doing everything possible to avoid firing people. They were out there on the front lines, you know, providing PPE and other ways of supporting. Um, most of them really stepped up uh, during that moment. Well, you both were on a listening tour to understand this, working in the field that you work in, and now you're on a speaking tour, hoping to change perceptions, not change minds, perceptions. This is a, a worthwhile task because you've got the data to back it up. I believe many of the audience members here are, you know, FFI members and they go out and they do talk to their clients and they do give speeches. And I'm going to talk about just behaviors and I, I'm going to urge people not to start their presentations with three generation rule or the data that, you know, only X percent go to the second and third generation because it it's too often used as a, as a scare tactic. And it's kind of a problem solution. You know, here's the problem. How many presentations have you been in where it starts with that? And uh, I want people at least to think twice about whether they should be using that, um, that kind of problem statement in the future. No, I, I a hundred percent agree with Rob. If, if, if that sort of, notion gets put to the sidelines and it's not to say we that's not to say we shouldn't talk about the challenge because this is hard work 
you know, it's hard being in a family business. It's hard advising family businesses. It's rewarding. That's, I think that's what makes it so rewarding is that it's challenging. Um, but let's just try to change the narrative a bit. You know, let's not sort of put this neg- – there's so much negativity about family businesses out in the world. I think one of our roles of as advisors is to bring positive energy into families and into the field. And so I would just say you don't have to be naive and Pollyannish and say this is easy. You know, you don't have to worry about the challenges. You can talk about all that stuff. It's there. Right. But just going into it with a more positive attitude about what family businesses have been doing, can do all the potential benefits for the business, for the family. Let's focus more on the positive and try to, as a field, try to counterbalance some of that negative narrative that's out there. Do most family businesses really fail by the third generation? Certainly encouraging our listeners to read it for themselves. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Jordan. We we appreciate it. My thanks to Josh Barron and Rob Lockenauer for this conversation about their recent article, Do Most Family Businesses Really Fail by the Third Generation? Published in Harvard Business Review. FFI's mission is to be the global network of thought leaders in the field of family enterprise. To learn more about the Family Business Review, FFI membership, and the October conference at MIT, go to www.ffi.org. For more FFI practitioner podcasts and articles, or to submit one of your own, go to ffipractitioner.org. I'm Jordan Rich. Thanks for listening.